Hello. My name is Tapu Maseva and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, episode 43. As you can imagine, COVID-19 has dominated the news cycle for the past week, and rightly so. It has and will have a large impact socially and commercially. This has impacted the variety of subjects this podcast usually covers. So, the headlines will cover a number of COVID-19 stories, but the longer reads will at least not directly be COVID-19 related for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think most newspapers and news sites are covering those stories quite extensively already. Second of all, to go back to the last point I made in episode 42 about covering the topic with sensitivity and respect, I personally take the view that centering an entire episode on the pandemic, especially just the commercial impact side, which is what I'd be limited to because of the scope of the podcast, would be somewhat tone-deaf towards its social and human impact. So, we'll cover it with some headlines, and then move on to the longer reads. Now, on to those headlines. The Bank of England has announced an emergency cutting of interest rates in response to COVID-19 from 0.75% to 0.25%, taking rates to the lowest level in history. In more COVID-19 news, the FTSE 100 suffered its worst day yesterday since the Black Monday crash of 1987, wiping £160 billion off the index's value. The European Commission is considering relaxing state aid rules across the European bloc in response to the virus. And for the last COVID-19 headline, Italian antitrust regulators are investigating e-commerce companies Amazon and eBay for allegedly hiking the prices of some products such as hand sanitizer during the outbreak. On to two more headlines. The U.S. president has signed legislation to bar telecom carriers from using government subsidies to purchase Huawei equipment, while France will follow in the UK's footsteps to authorize the use of some of Huawei's equipment in its 5G infrastructure. And finally, UK-based insurance broker Aon is to acquire Willis Towers Watson in an all-shared deal that will combine the second and third largest insurance brokers in the world. This will probably draw some interest from antitrust regulators. Latham & Watkins, Freshfields, Arthur Cox, Veal, Scadden, and Matheson all have roles in the acquisition. If you'd like to read more on any of these stories, links as always are in the description. Now, the longer reads. For the first read, the Investment Association has published a document setting out shareholder priorities for the year. First of all, the Investment Association is a trade body for investment managers, and it represents 250 managers that hold, quote, in aggregate, one-third of the value of UK publicly listed companies, end quote. The IA conducted its research within its own members and outlined what shareholders for listed companies have been and are prioritizing for the coming year, and in a non-exhaustive list, found that these are responding to climate change, audit quality, stakeholder engagement and voice, and diversity. Other than audit quality, these are priorities we have discussed at length in this podcast. This document, however, tells us that shareholders now view them as significant as well. Up until now, we had viewed these sustainability initiatives as somewhat separate from the duties to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its shareholders. But this brings those concepts together as the shareholders seem to be encouraging these initiatives. Before we go any further, I do need to mention the document's limitations. Because this represents investment managers, they for the most part pursue long-term growth over short-term growth, as does the IA in the drafting of this document, and not all shareholders are pursuing long-term growth. Private equity firms, for example, are more interested in short-term growth and as a result may not prioritize the same goals, simply because, for the sake of an illustrative example, an oil and gas company seeking net-zero carbon emissions is not a cheap task, 
especially in the short term. So it's important to put these stories into perspective. Not every shareholder will be interested in this wave of sustainability companies are pursuing that we have reported on a number of times. However, this document does show that a reasonably large number of shareholders interested in long-term growth prioritize these initiatives, and as a result would mean that we may see more companies pursuing it. In terms of commercial awareness, this is, for the most part, a general corporate governance story. Practically, it may not affect firm behavior, especially if they are not publicly listed ABSs that have shareholders to be concerned about. But we did mention in the headline section of episode 40, pharmaceutical company Novartis, and how they announced that they would dock the pay of firms on its panel by 15% if they did not adhere to their criteria for diversity and inclusion. As diversity is one of the aforementioned priorities for the IA members, this shows a practical example of how companies, with the blessing of their shareholders, may conduct their business or hire their lawyers. Law firms could end up losing pay or work for not prioritizing the same ideals. If you'd like to read the entire document, as always, links for all stories are in the description. Credit for this story goes to the Investment Association. In the second read, the Housing Secretary has outlined new property development ideas that will form part of a white paper in the near future. Robert Jenrick, the Housing Sec, has proposed a number of new ideas that intersect quite well with a number of topics we have considered in recent episodes. He has suggested that developers should use more brownfield sites, build upwards, and in the near future, developers may be given more freedom to demolish disused commercial buildings and turn them into homes. And in what feels like a response to what was reported on in the previous episode, a potential ban on developments on land at high risk of flooding could be implemented. So, for the sake of our commercial awareness, I'd say everything but the building upwards point can be elaborated on. Not because building upwards is any less important, but is rather self-explanatory. Onto the use of more brownfield sites, those are defined as previously used industrial commercial sites that may be potentially contaminated. This brings us back to a similar discussion we had just last week. Whether it is on the government, developer, or future property owner to assess the viability of the land, once again, they will probably depend on lawyers to inform them of the relevant searches to conduct and what these results would mean. The most extreme results of land contamination would mean whoever owns the land, or whoever is to buy the land, would be responsible to remediate the contaminated land. This is a cost a buyer would probably like to be aware of before the completion of the purchase, which is why the lawyer is so important in a real estate transaction. Furthermore, for private buyers requiring mortgages, the mortgagee banks may be reluctant to assist in buying property built on contaminated land. Contaminated land could also lower any future sale price. So to conclude on this point, the extent of contamination and generally the buyer's views about the contamination will vary, but it is and will be important for their buyer's lawyers to provide them with that information beforehand. For the next point, the freedom to demolish disused commercial buildings and turn them into residential property is actually a bleak but interesting byproduct of the faltering high street, a topic we've mentioned a number of times. The document spoke of an initiative to create, quote, a new permitted development right to allow vacant commercial buildings, industrial buildings, and residential blocks to be demolished and replaced with well-designed new residential units which meet natural light standards, end quote. As consumer behavior changes from offline to online, the reality is a number of retailers are struggling to keep so many sites open and keep the employees of those sites, well, employed. But such an announcement from the housing sec at least tells us that at least one thing can be solved with that problem, and that's the housing shortage problem. Furthermore, one can only imagine that it will be a worse quarter or even year for the high street as a result of COVID-19, 
simply because consumers will shop on the high street even less as they limit travel from their homes. This is another point to consider. So, yes, maybe the future of the high street actually is turning it into residential property. But what happens for those high street employees? Finally, as for the ban on development on land at flood risk, this still does not answer for the houses post-2009 which still have high or non-existent flood insurance, but it does show some initiative to at least prevent kicking another can down the road. Maybe we discounted the building upwards point a little too soon, as the next plan for developers could be to build upwards on land at low risk of flooding. So, these proposed ideas inspire a number of observations on our side. Mainly, those observations are discussions to be had about commercial buildings in the high street, and once again, the lawyer's role in caveat emptor, and in this instance, contaminated land. Credit for this story goes to Jim Pickard. The final read is a revisit to episode 27, as the European Commission is considering extending its right to repair laws to phones, tablets, and laptops as well. So, to revisit what we reported on in episode 27, the EU implemented a new right to repair for consumers beginning in 2021 that requires appliance companies to make longer-lasting products and supply spare parts for up to 10 years. This was a response to consumers expressing their unhappiness with appliances breaking down just at the expiration of the warranty, and without any affordable repairs available, having to resort to buying new appliances. And through the lens of that 2050 target many countries have of net zero carbon emissions, including the UK of course, this right to repair fit in quite well, as the constant purchasing of large appliances such as washing machines, dishwashers, and fridges to replace appliances that could have just been repaired results in avoidable greenhouse gas emissions in the constant manufacturing. We can call this a linear economy business-consumer relationship. The business manufactures a product, the consumer uses the product, when it breaks they dispose of it, and have to buy a new product and repeat, starting the linear economy again. So, as part of a new, quote, EU Circular Economy Action Plan, end quote, the European Commission, or EC, now hopes to include electronics such as phones and laptops and tablets into the 2021 right to repair, what they call a, quote, circular electronics initiative, end quote. In the European Commission's own words, they said, quote, At present, many products break down too quickly, cannot be reused, repaired, or recycled, or can only be used once. This linear pattern of production and consumption, take, make, use, dispose, does not give producers an incentive to make more sustainable products. The Sustainable Product Policy Framework aims to change the situation with actions to make green products become the norm, end quote. The Commission will work towards strengthening the repairability of products. The aim is to embed a, quote, right to repair in the EU consumer and product policies by 2021, end quote. So, it's an initiative to create a more circular economy that does away with and disincentivizes single-use products and prevents premature obsolescence. The action plan targets more than just electronics, and a link to read the entire European Commission document is in the description. So, as I usually ask after I've told you the story, why does this matter? It's threefold. First, the environment. We've spoken even in this episode about how long-term shareholders are now prioritizing their company's responses to climate change, and over a number of episodes, we've mentioned how different banks and companies are making their own net-zero and sustainable pledges. In short, you no longer have to be an environmentalist to mention the impact climate change is having on present and future business decisions. This story shows regulation enforcing these decisions as well. To contextualize even more, as recently as episode 39, 
We mentioned the UK's decision to push forward the ban of the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2040 to 2035 to pursue net zero carbon emissions by 2050. The environment and climate change has and will continue to affect a number of industries. And speaking of those industries, the second point is on the companies themselves. Companies being expected to sell fewer but longer-lasting products results in one thing. Lower manufacturing rates, which means smaller profit margins, which could result in fewer jobs. Granted, in the European Commission document, it is said that the new rules will, quote, also aim to reward manufacturers of products based on their sustainability performance and link high performance levels to incentives, end quote. Whether these incentives will make up for all the money lost in selling fewer products is not for me to predict, but that is a tall order. Though on a side note, it would be ironic if the incentive was a tax break considering the tax story we spoke of in episode 41. The third point is of the circular economy, the right to repair, and its relationship with IP. When we first spoke of the matter in episode 27, we mentioned that some replacement parts for appliances would not have IP protection as a result of the must-fit, must-match exclusions to design rights. This simply means that some replacement or spare parts cannot be protected by IP because they lack individual character or novelty. If the spare parts design is solely dictated by its technological function, it is unlikely to be protected by design rights. This could mean that those companies providing the phones, tablets, and laptops may not even be the sole players in the replacement and repair market, and anyone who has been to a third-party repair shop has some hands-on experience with this. This could be even more of an impact on their profit margin in this envisioned circular economy. However, considering that Samsung, an appliance and electronics maker, reportedly has over 1.2 million patents, and Apple has more than 75,000 patents, they may be protected from that exclusion, or at least have the litigious power to remain the largest players in the replacement market, and obviously, it is at this third point where lawyers may find themselves the busiest if the right to repair does come into force in 2021, being tasked with the role to ensure that their clients are protected, and enforcing their clients' rights to their spare parts. It also asks the question as to just how the European Commission envisions the repair and replacement market to work in a way that would reward these companies for participating in it, but also remain affordable for the consumer. Yes, it could mean companies like Apple and Samsung supply third parties with parts, but how is the quality of those repairs maintained? And what for the future of warranties? Up until now, all of the updates we've made on companies and their carbon-neutral initiatives have, yes, shown some sort of care about other stakeholders and the environment, but would have also been decisions made by those companies targeting long-term growth. I believe we end up becoming a bit too idealistic in hoping these product manufacturers would be happy to participate in a circular economy if it gravely affects their financial performance. I'd imagine that these same companies will be lobbying for these views to be heard before this right is granted. So, this is a rather important update, not only as another anecdote for the impact the 2050 target is having on many businesses, but it is also a consumer law issue that could become an employment law issue if the manufacturing of fewer products does result in a shortfall of profit and leads to job cuts. Furthermore, there's the IP discussion to be had of the relationship between the specifics of those hundreds of thousands of patents and the spare parts that could most commonly be used. But generally, this just takes us back to the discussions we've had about changing landscapes and how it will impact different industries. Final point. This right to repair would begin in 2021 in the EU, assumedly after the transition period. If that's the case, the UK could theoretically create their own similar rules or not. 
If they did, then many companies across Europe are looking at a change in the dynamic between themselves and a large part of the European consumer base. If the UK elected to not grant a right to repair, then that's regulatory fragmentation in Europe, which once again brings lawyers back into the fold to help companies determine how best to conduct their business across the world. In closing, this right to repair could have far-reaching consequences, shines a light onto a number of unaddressed concerns, but also provides us with a rather down-to-earth topic to discuss. So, a few questions for you. Is the right to repair a necessary trade-off between business performance and the so-called greater good? And if not, how else should we adequately and more fairly address consumer and environmental concerns? If this is not the middle ground, then what is? Credit for this story goes to the European Commission, John Porter, and Chris Stokel-Watson. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast on your listening platform. It goes a long way. And if you find the podcast useful, be sure to recommend it to a friend or colleague. If you need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode description. And the podcast Instagram page is at comewarepod. That is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D. If you prefer to contact me there, or just want to follow the podcast there for any updates. Other than that, thank you for listening, and you'll hear from me next week.